Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. You may remember that sometime back I talked with Andy Kesson about John Lilly, a neglected writer of the Tudor period. Today I'm delighted to be considering another forgotten playwright who was, as my guest today has written, as close to a literary celebrity as Tudor England possessed, John Haywood. This is not Thomas Haywood a later playwright, nor Sir John Haywood, an Elizabethan historian. This is John Haywood, born 1496 or 7, who died around 1580, and whose extraordinary life and wit has much to teach us about Tudor England. I'm delighted to be joined today by Professor Greg Walker, Greg is Regis Professor of Rhetoric and English Literature at the University of Edinburgh. He's the Fellow of More Royal Societies than You Can Shake a Stick At. And he's responsible for, among many other books, the Oxford Anthology of Tudor Drama and the Oxford Handbook of Tudor Drama, for which he's co-editor. And he also has written many books himself. He says he's been fascinated with John Hayward since his second book, Plays of Persuasion, Drama and Politics, at the court of Henry VIII, which came out in 1992. And in 2010, Greg staged with Tom Betteridge, Ellie Rycroft and the director Gregory Thompson a research-led production of Hayward's Play of the Weather in the Great Hall at Hampton Court, funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council, we ought to importantly note, which I was lucky enough to see. And Greg has now written a marvellous elegant, wonderful new book on John Hayward called, appropriate enough, John Hayward, Comedy and Survival in Tudor England, which was published by OUP in 2020. And so it's John Hayward that we're going to be talking about today. But first of all, I thought, Greg, I'd like to ask you about your approach to literature, because you've got this magnificent title of being a professor of rhetoric and English literature. But your approach to literature is very much that of putting a literary work in the specific historical context in which it was produced, which means that your books are very much works of fine historical scholarship as they are of literary scholarship. How do you manage to ride both these horses? Well, with difficulty, I suppose. I was lucky that just as Tarzan was kind of reared by apes in the jungle, I fell among historians at an early age. And so most of my training was in a history department. So whilst everyone in literary departments were having theory wars, we just kind of blithely plodded on thinking, well, books were written in time by people who lived most of their lives worried about taxes and politics and which religion was allowed that day or not. So it was almost kind of instinctive to think, well, okay, that's all very well, but why do this now? And where would it have been performed? And what would people have thought of it? Particularly when you're writing about comedy and kind of edgy statements, satire, those kinds of things, they don't exist in a vacuum. So the thought that you would make jokes about kingship in front of Henry VIII, for instance, sort of cried out for a bit of a political analysis as well. Whereas most literary historians, I guess, think about history as the backdrop that would explain the jokes in a play and and the primary point of reference is the play. I was much more interested in thinking, well, what does knowing about all this literary stuff help us to understand about the reign of Henry VIII or the Reformation period? 
And suddenly there was a whole new resource out there. History departments tend to be pointing me towards archives that were narrowly defined as sober records and repositories of data, whereas my interest was, well, are there any jokes in it? And if so, why are they there? And how might they have been funny? And those kind of things. So it's always felt instinctive. And sometimes, obviously, going back to your metaphor, the horses are heading off in diametrically opposed directions and you begin to worry for your trousers. But... (laughs) Most of the time you can kind of yoke them back and I wouldn't really be interested in plays in the way I am if it wasn't for the fact that they tell you something about people. It helps to be interested in language and moments of humour as well. I mean, the importance of comedy in history is often (laughs) completely ignored. Actually, there is a question, though, about writing about comedy. I found when I was looking at, for example, the work on the falls at Henry VIII's court, which we might talk about in some future podcast, it can be quite difficult to understand what makes people laugh at different points in history, that things that would have provoked laughter then are quite different to what provokes laughter now. We can't see the point of the jokes. How do you wrestle with that? Well, I think that's kind of answer, really. I mean, the problem is why work on comedy that doesn't make you laugh? And a lot of (laughs) Hayward's rib-tickling humour does fall a bit flat now. So rather than think, oh, he's a bit rubbish, you think, well, what was it that made this man with these kind of slightly lame puns and these kind of awful repetitive jokes about the lack of agency of women or the kind of spitefulness of wives? But asking yourself, why would someone watch this and think, good Lord, that's the funniest thing I've ever seen? And it then takes you into a kind of culture of taboo and things. So what is he doing here that's daring? Why making jokes about the clergy in the late 1520s? Why is that funny? And then particularly, how is that funny? How is that playing into a Reformation audience? How is that playing into a beleaguered Catholic audience? But also there was a brilliant article on Shakespeare, the title of which was Why Are Gentlemen Tailors Funny in Shakespeare? And I thought, oh, I don't know. Why? And then... Suddenly it's about queerness and campness and the way Shakespeare makes fun of certain professions, the slightly effeminate nature of tailors, but then twists it and actually it's about people who are addicted to having their tailor round to suit them up again with another fashionable thing. So that's why it's interesting. What is funny about that? And some things I think are still funny. I mean, Hayward will stop a humanist debate and say, would you rather be a tree or a river? And you think, oh, that's... (laughs) I mean, that's, yep, I I admire that. Yes, I'll think about it for a bit. But then there are other things about, oh, you know, uh, your tongue is from London. Oh, why? Well, it's edgeware. It's sharp. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) I wasn't expecting you to laugh at that. It's a sort of insult you can imagine one part of the country throwing at each other now. Well, let's talk about his biography and then we'll come back to his humour a bit more in a second because we should introduce him. So tell us about John Hayward. One of the interesting things about him is that he lived to be very old. So when he was born, the world was very stable. England was a Catholic country, 1497, 98. You know, the Tudors were here. Everything looked pretty stable. The most turbulent thing on the horizon was Erasmus, being witty and liberal and urbane and clever. And he lived on into the early reign of Elizabeth. So unlike his relatives and his friends and those around him, he never left the country. So when the crown radically changed the state religion and persecuted people for believing the thing that they were enjoined to believe in the week before, he didn't flee to the Netherlands like so many of his Catholic colleagues and allies did. He stayed. So one of the interesting things is how does someone who is self-evidently a reforming Catholic who was not at all attracted to the Swiss or German Reformation and was deeply suspicious of what he saw, I think, as, you know, the sort of nakedly opportunistic changes in religion brought about by the later years of Henry and then the Edwardian Reformation. You know, how did he stay? How did he reconcile his conscience? Because he joked about these things through a whole century, you know, gently mocking (laughs) the Reformation is a fairly risky thing to do. So that's why I think he's interesting as a kind of subject. But also his career, you know, he was, I mean, I claim in the book, you know, as near to a celebrity as mid-Tudor England knew. And I think that's not hyperbole. I mean, his career was phenomenal. He always talked about himself very modestly as a singing man. But, you know, he wrote a clutch of plays among the earliest secular English drama that survived and among the earliest to be printed. 
He then switched to writing songs and lyrics in and around St Paul's Cathedral. He wrote lyric poetry, particularly in the reign of Mary Tudor, who was, I think, his model monarch, really. The apotheosis he kind of experienced when Mary Tudor came back and Catholicism was restored was a kind of moment of wonder, short-lived, clearly. But So then he wrote poetry for her, affirming her reign and bravely, I think, criticising the kind of violence against Protestants. He was an Erasmian through and through. You, know, you should not kill people. Killing people is wrong, was uh, one of Hayward's major kind of mantras. And he said it to everybody. And, you know, in the most violent years of the Protestant Reformation, he put on a play in front of Cranmer, which was about reconciliation and toleration. I admire that. Obviously, it didn't work, <laughs> but it was brave. And the thing that people remembered him for was none of those things. He then suddenly reinvented himself as a collector of proverbs, and he produced volume after volume of things which he claimed were the proverbs of the streets of London in the mid-century. And you know, people like Ben Jonson remember Haywood, the proverb collector, as a kind of touchstone of late Elizabethan, well, awfulness in some ways. And it was kind of the kind of things they laughed at in the late 16th century were Haywood, the epigrammist, the proverb collector. So he has five or six creative talents that he pursued throughout the Tudor century. And it's interesting to follow him doing that. So he starts at court, it seems, from around 1519 as a singer and musician. So I suppose in some ways he's coming back and forward from these different forms of creativity. And presumably that was in part because of his connections to people like Thomas More. That's another way in which he is really interesting, in that he's connected to that deeply creative, reformist, Erasmian, humanist group around Thomas More and John Rastel. He married into that family, which was really at the heart of everything that was creative, really, in the first, well, three decades of the 16th century. And you can see Hayward negotiating the pull of his employment as a musician at court, but also getting into these kind of new forms like the interlude, the dialogue. And his plays are full of echoes of what Thomas More was doing at that point, and not always wholly laudatory echoes. He wasn't the same man that More was, so he would tell More sometimes that killing people was wrong. You just have to get along. And so you can see moments in More's career kind of erupting in Hayward's work, particularly in his plays. I mean, he seemed to have been tremendously excited that Thomas More was, at very short notice, invited to be Lord Chancellor when Wolsey fell. And this seems to have kind of galvanised both John Rastell, his father-in-law, and Hayward to write a play about reform and, you know, what you could do in Parliament if you could abolish the laws of property. You could actually make Erasmus real. And I think that makes sense if you've now got a humanist as Lord Chancellor. And he never really left the ambit of the court. So Hayward's social circle is the Rastall family, and they owned one of the first professional theatres in Tudor England, in Finsbury Fields. Lincoln's Inn and the Inns of Court, where they also all had a kind of at least one foot, and then the Royal Court. And he kind of triangulates those points of cultural reference through his life, really. Thinking of his plays, I found it really interesting to read in your book that he was at court from 1519 until late 1528, when he seems to have lost his core position. But you argue that that's the period in which he began his most active phase as a playwright, his annus meribulus. But 1529, of course, in English politics wasn't marvellous for some, I mean, including Thomas Wolsey. So could you tell me a bit about this amazing profusion and context for that? In practical terms, if you're no longer required to provide musical entertainment for the court on a daily basis you haven't got an income, but you've also got a lot of free time. So I think that he may well have been exploring other ways to use his creativity to make a living. He was married, he'd got two children by then, so you know he had to bring in money. I think one of the things that writing this book has reminded, well, I say reminded, I mean, <laughs> I didn't know it before, so now I'm aware of it, is just how important the summoning of the Reformation Parliament was. You know, it's conventional to say, and I rehearse it in the book, they didn't know it was the Reformation Parliament when they called it. It was just another parliament. But the number of people writing and commenting at the time about, you know, now is the moment to do something. You know, Wolsey has fallen. The church 
courts are up for negotiation. The lawyers are up in arms wanting to change some of the grievances that at last are going to be addressed. And with more on the King's side as Lord Chancellor, I think there was a genuine moment when they thought, oh, we can realise some of these fantasies that uh, Utopia or Erasmus's texts had been voicing for two decades. And there's a moment of non-cynicism, I think, in the late 1520s when people like Rastel and Moore himself think the horizons of opportunity for doing good in the world are opening up very briefly and, of course, then close down again and, oh, yeah, it is just politics after all. And then there's the king's great matter. So the temperature has gone from tolerable to near to boiling in a few months in 1529. And it stays at that point because that kind of ongoing accumulation of crisis after crisis, driven by Henry's marital difficulties, but also the questions of what are we reforming and how far do we go? And then the religious debate mapping on to that. And the trial of Thomas Bilney, I think, is again really significant and really significant for Haywood because Thomas More was clearly infuriated by it and you know wrote the whole book, The Dialogue of Heresies, more or less, to challenge Thomas Bilney, this young heretical scholar who'd been preaching dangerous doctrine in East Anglia. And so Haywood's plays are speaking to this contemporary moment And they are political and they're becoming kind of edgy. I was really struck by what may be his first play, I guess you pronounce it John John, in which one thing that does transcend the centuries is jokes about poo and farting. Then we move into plays where actually there's some deep discussions going on where comedy is kind of providing a sense of levity. For example, the 4PP. Tell us about this, of four characters perhaps whose names begin with P and perhaps inspired by Erasmus. I think what he was doing was inventing a form of theatre that drew on the dialogue. Imagine inventing secular drama. Well, what is it when it's people talking? Oh, right. And what do they say? Well, they just talk about stuff. They have arguments. So all of Haywood's plays are, you know, a bit like in Waiting for Godot, nothing happens twice. In Haywood's plays, some people come on, they have an argument about something, and then they think, that's all right, then we'll stop. And then they go away. Nothing is ever resolved, but they have a big debate about an issue. And the four Ps, the only play of Haywood's we know that Shakespeare read, was very much one of those plays. You've got these four characters who I'll never remember. the Palmer um, or Pilgrim, Pardoner, Pothecary and Peddler. That's it, yep. So it begins with a kind of internal Erasmian discussion between the Pilgrim and the Pardoner, saying, how can I ensure my soul is saved at my death? One says, well, you must go and visit shrines in far-off places. And the other says, well, no, just give me five pence and I'll save your soul with a pardon. And then another character comes on. There's always a character who is kind of mischievous and anarchist figure. And here it's the apothecary who says, well, it's actually me because you can't go to heaven unless you die. And I've got poisons and stuff and all kinds of horror that if you just give me a fiver, I'll slip you something then you can just kill people. And then they'll surely go to heaven. And then there's the next stock figure who is the peddler, who's the figure of reconciliation and respecting everybody who comes on and says, we need a bit of all of these things. And, you know, the agenda is as society becomes more and more fractured and divisive and hostile, he's always arguing for, you will not be able to win by dividing. The only way to win is by reconciling. And at the end, they resolve that they all love God in their own different ways. That's Hayward in a nutshell, really. There is more than one way to heaven. And anyone who argues that there is only one way is actually part of the problem, not the solution. And I think that's where he began to see clear water between himself and Thomas More, you know, who was increasingly abandoning that playful toleration and arguing there is actually, when it comes down to it, one way. Let's not mess about. That's interesting. So in each of these plays, there's perhaps a different issue at stake here how do you get to heaven? In gentleness, nobility, I suppose you might say it's about status and power. Who is the greatest gentleman and who is the most noble man? Yeah. And then we've got a play of love about whether it's more miserable to suffer unrequited love or be the object of it or whether it's more happy to be loved and to love or to be indifferent to love. And each one of them is responding to the circumstances in which it's being produced. Well, I think that kind of slightly odd... You know, I'm building a play around a question, an argument. 
comes out of the schools and the inns of court. You know, it's a debating point. And the more outlandish the question at issue is, you know, the better training it is in rhetoric and logic and reason. So who is the unhappiest in love and who is the happiest? And then it's not what you think, because there's this great moment when the man who is perfectly in love with his beloved and she perfectly loves him isn't happier than the man who is loved by no one and loves no one in return. And they all kind of call it a draw at the end, which again is the classic. Things are even as they were, that someone usually says at some point in a Haywood play. And you know you can probably put the kettle on because it's nearly nearly done by then. <laughs> there is a very much a sense that we need to identify the audiences who are seeing and hearing very conscious of that book about play going that says people are hearing plays in this time seeing and hearing these plays and thinking about what they would have been taking from it so for example should we think about a play of love as being devised from thomas more i think so i mean i think it makes perfect sense i mean Howard is very good at telling you who he's writing for because he has this chameleon ability to pastiche and parody, the cultural tropes and idiosyncrasies of a particular profession or a particular social group. So in the play of love, you know, there are lots of jokes about lawyers and there's a long skit about the Lord Chancellor and there's a parody of Wolsey. And so it kind of invites one to think of it in terms of the moment when Wolsey's position as Lord Chancellor is suddenly up for grabs and a member of the family is auditioning for the job. And it's about teaching the Lord Chancellor what his job is, which is kind of a fairly audacious thing for him to have suggested to his uncle. But, you know, it's about equity and take it seriously and don't start interpreting the law for one class or another. You know, obviously playing into the model that Moore himself created as the one true honest man in the Tudor legal system. There's always a little sharp point to the humour, even when it's at its most supportive, saying, well, you better live up to that then. And that might mean saying some things that you don't quite agree with, like letting a few Protestants off, perhaps. There's a classical route to this, which is Lucian, the classical satirist who Moore and Erasmus, when they were young, translated together. And what everybody liked about Lucian was there was no stable point to his satire. Most satire, you're saying you know where the speaker stands, but with a Lucianic satire, the speaker is themselves ridiculous. So, you know, everything is in motion in that constellation all the time. And the only stability is to accept that instability and not try and place yourself on the moral high ground because there isn't any. And that, you know, is a very dangerous thing when you have to swear oaths that you believe a certain thing. Then suddenly to say, you know, I believe in nothing <laughs> is... Very dangerous. So there's also a discomfort, in fact, as is often the case with the best humour, it makes you laugh, but you don't know if it's going to be directed at you. Mm. One way back to Haywood from a contemporary perspective is to see him as a bit like someone like Stuart Lee, who will turn on his audience and you know, you never know from one second to the next whether he is mocking you, mocking himself, whether there's a joke here you're not seeing. And Haywood is always in that territory, whereas he'll laugh at himself, he'll laugh at you, he'll laugh at you in a way that invites you to laugh back at yourself with him. And then there's the kind of, didn't mean it. Yes, I did. No, I didn't. Yes, I did. And it unsettles. That's the thing it does. And they got that from Lucian, I think. And they loved it because suddenly you weren't just saying the opposite of the truth. As satire, it had gone. <laughs> Everything was now up for grabs. And one of the plays that we've mentioned already that he does this in is the play that you staged at Hampton Court, the play of the weather, where actually, arguably, he's laughing at Henry VIII, among other people, in the years before words become treason, but when there is some cause to suspect you might be thought treasonous for them all the same. And so let's talk about the play of the weather, what it's ostensibly about for a start. Yes, it's a play about different types of weather on the surface. But there's a resonance in just calling a play a play of the weather when one of the things that was the most striking about the Reformation Parliament was that Thomas More's opening speech began with this kind of completely unexpected, vicious ad hominem attack on Wolsey, which came out of a clear blue sky, I think. No one would have expected, A, you don't do that in an opening speech to Parliament, 
and B, Moore was actually recommended for the job by Wolsey. He calls Wolsey the great weather, you know, weather as in castrated ram, the bellwether of a flock of sheep. You know, he was leading our sheep into perdition and Henry had to cull him and bring the sheep back. So in the year, the months when your uncle has just attacked the chief minister of the realm and the cardinal of a church as a great weather to say, oh, my next work is called The Play of the Weather. I think people come along to that when it's performed at court in the royal household, probably, certainly in London. You know, they would be expecting a political satire. And then in a very Haywardian way, the next thing he says is, oh, really? No, no, I'm the weather. <laughs> it's all about snow. But of course, already then your antennae are quivering for, for political resonance, and it's full of it. You know, it's a Chaucerian estate satire. And it begins with Jupiter, the king. You can never perform a king before the king without the king at least being the implicit target of any jokes about kingship. Coming on and saying, God, this parliament, goodness, I mean, what a mess. I've been in this parliament. I called them to reform abuses and all they do is argue. And then what they're arguing about is the weather rather than religious policy or the law. So the weather becomes a kind of proxy subject for discussion about religious extremism, I think, because then he says, well, anyone who wants the weather changed, <laughs> just come and tell me. And of course, England being England, the weather being changeable, lots of characters then come on stage and say, well, now you mention it. So the gentleman wants good weather to go hunting. The merchant wants moderate but not excessive wind for his ships to ply the trade routes. The gentlewoman wants weather that's not going to harm her perfectly white skin. The laundress wants weather that's so hot that her clothes will dry. And you get these kind of opposing pairs who want exactly the opposite weather to the other person. And the best one is the millers. The windmiller comes on and says, what a rubbish country. There's no wind at all. It rains all the time, so I want wind. And the next person on, the watermiller, who says, there's so much wind and no rain. This is awful. So you get the sense that everyone is reading the weather in their own image for their own selfish reasons, and they all want to reform it in a way which would help them only and damn everyone else. And at the very end, shall I give the spoiler away? I'm... I guess we have to, because we have to explain. <laughs> we have to explain how it could be read. And I suppose we already have a guess, knowing Haywood so far, how it might end. Yet yeah, there is that, even as it was, it will be again moment because the vice character, the comedy character called Merry Report, who is very much Hayward himself, you know, everything is presented in a merry fashion, says, you know, I can't see how you're going to solve this. There's 12 people and they've got 14 views of what the weather ought to be. And you can't satisfy one of them without upsetting another one. And Jupiter just says, hold my beer, leave it with me. And then he tells everyone they can have exactly the weather they want but only for some of the time and when they deserve it. And they all say, blimey, this is great. What a marvellous king you are. And they all celebrate. A merry report looks to camera and says, now they shall have the weather even as it was. And of course, this is in the early months of the royal supremacy discussions. You know, it's giving Henry with one hand exactly what he wants. You know, only the king can legislate in the interests of the whole realm. Only the king can solve the divided realm, the conundrum presented by everyone wanting something and wanting it violently, that only they will benefit from. But the subtext, of course, is that it only works if you keep things as they are. The king who does nothing is the king who will be celebrated and remembered as the great king. So again, it's that kind of 360 satire. So if Henry is laughing and thinks, aha, that's me, that is doing all this great reform, you know, everyone's thinking, yeah, but then he's telling you not to do anything. Everyone is mocked, including Hayward himself, I think. And one of the people he's mocking in the course of that is Henry VIII himself. And we'll talk a bit more about that and indeed about the bawdiness in Hayward's place and Hayward's own brush with disaster a little bit later. Okay, Tristan, you've got 50 seconds. Go. Right, so Dan's given me a few seconds to sell the Ancients podcast. What is the Ancients, I hear you say? Well, it's like Dan's show, except just ancient history. We've got the groundbreaking new archaeological discoveries. This seems to be the oldest known dated depiction of the animal world, as far as we can tell, anywhere in the world. 
we've got the big names. It's one of those sort of great things, Pompeii. It's kind of forever rising from the dead and from destruction. We've got the big topics. The man destroys seven legions in a day. No one in history has done that. Subscribe to the Ancients from History Hit wherever you get your podcast from. Oh, and Russell Crowe, if you're listening, we would love to have you on the Ancients. Spread the word, people. Spread the word. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. So I'm talking to Professor Greg Walker, and we are talking about the play of the weather, Written by John Haywood, who Greg calls a literary celebrity of the 16th century. And in this play, one of the things that Haywood's doing is that he is, as you've said, he has done elsewhere, aping the sort of language that's used. And here he's doing it in the speeches that he gives Jupiter when he's echoing the sort of things that have been said in Parliament about Henry VIII becoming supreme head of the church. Now that feels so risky, doesn't it? It's wonderful. It is that Erasmian idea that the ideal state has a king who is willing to be mocked. And the only way, therefore, that the king can show that he is the perfect prince is to be mocked. You know, there's a little crack open in the door where satire creeps in and finds a place in this notion of good counsel. You know, you're telling the king what he needs to know. You're gently mocking him. But you're doing that because you know that he's the kind of king who wants to be mocked when he's risible. But with Henry VIII, of course, you didn't know that. You suspected it was the opposite. So actually going in, leading with your chin and mocking him is saying, could we meet maybe 90% me, 10% you? And it's really audacious stuff. You know, the language with which Jupiter speaks at the beginning is full of these kind of convoluted, self-destroying claims about his power. And, you know, the thing that everyone acknowledged but no one said out loud about the royal supremacy was he's just made it up whereas it was this realm of england is an empire and always has been (laughs) but it wasn't yesterday was it what jupiter is saying is i've never been more powerful than i am today but i always have been eternally supreme and so i think those people who were internal to the ongoing debate about where does the royal supremacy come from how far can you claim it is the argument being that the popes have usurped it and it was always kings of england have always been imperial even though none of them realized it so you've got jupiter making exactly that claim that he is and always has been supreme king of the gods but just at this moment he's got slightly more power than he used to have because he's acknowledging it now 
And so to watch that, and Henry wasn't stupid, is taking his most cherished political project of the moment and giving it clown shoes. And I take off my hat <laughs> to Hayward for daring to do that. And I think only Hayward could do that because of this merry, oh, he doesn't offend anyone persona, which means he can always slightly offend everyone. What did you learn when you staged it? Was it sort of seeing it performed in the sort of space, possibly not the exact space, because that was particular great hall wasn't finished at the time, but the sort of space it might have been performed. What did you learn from that experience? It's interesting. I mean, it's a, partly about literally the space, you know, so you have to ask questions like, where would the king have been sitting? How would the audience have been configured? And then suddenly, the actors start asking you questions about which way am I pointing when I say those words? Who am I conspiring with? You know, am I winking? Or am I pretending there's a fourth wall? And of course, in this space, there's no fourth wall, you're in a hall surrounded by people. So you're always talking to somebody. Mary report does a lot of joking about the royal household and the king and he's always having to talk to someone and once you're aware that there's a king in the room you know you can't not remember that there's a king in the room so you're always kind of did he laugh did he not laugh should I make him laugh some more if he did laugh what's he laughing at did he notice I wasn't laughing at the right bit you know everybody is kind of there's a centre of people force that the audience is watching Henry watching a play and the actors are acting before Henry in front of an audience and it changes everything. You know, it makes the dynamic of it really exciting. And one of the things that Tom Betteridge decided, actually on a whim, when someone said, well, where should we sit? He said, well, women on this side, men on that side. And that, again, was a fundamental moment of revelation because what everyone said afterwards was, if you're making sexy jokes about impotent men and ugly women and sexy women, and you're aware that as a man, you're looking at a wall of women judging you reacting to this material it reproduces that dynamic of the spectator isn't passive the spectator is spectating in full view of people who believe different things or have different life experiences and you know what does a woman feel there are certain sexual jokes the anatomical preciseness of which <laughs> are quite striking what is she thinking when looked at by an audience of men and how much more would that have been the case in the 1520s when gender dynamics were much darker and you suddenly see yes this performance stuff is quite interesting isn't it it's not just the words and you mentioned what we might call bawdiness or misogyny that appears in Hayward's plays in the four p's talking about the width of a woman's pin case and the pins she must have inside them or in <laughs> the play of the weather about the king the god king, Jupiter, fashioning a lusty new moon to replace an old leaky one. Now, these are quite striking. They obviously speak to a culture at the time that thinks of both the sexual insatiability of women and also the way that women sort of cease to be of use, really, once they are no longer fertile. But they're still pretty much on the nose, I think, in such a context. He had to have been confident that he could make those jokes about the queen in the most bawdy and intimate and derisive fashion. And that does tell us, I think, something about the real masculine-centred world that we're looking at. You know, this is a drama, a rhetoric, a humanism, bred in boys' schools, read in Latin primarily by men, and the kind of homosocial bonding that a play like this is doing is quite striking. And I hadn't quite got that until I looked at it all collectively and I thought yes there is no woman's voice or woman's space in any of Hayward's works and yet this is a liberal progressive early Tudor thinker and Thomas More is the great exemplar of educating his daughters but he also mocks his wife put him in ale company with Erasmus and you know it's jokes about how stupid his wife is and how brilliant his father was for mocking his wife there are just moments when the alternative voice comes out and Hayward's producing the laundress is one of those moments. You know, a woman from a different class who admittedly puts down the comic vice male figure and the aristocratic woman. But there's just a moment when you see a different experience there and, and he looks beyond this grammar school, inns of court, educated male group and says, let's imagine for a moment the experience of someone who isn't one of us and give that woman a moment of 
agency and integrity and authenticity. Most of the people just come on and are visibly themselves. You know, the merchant is kind of mean-spirited and self-interested, and the millers are just kind of grasping crooks, really. But the laundress, you want your clothes washing? We need sunshine. I look beautiful once. I'm older now, and so I have to make a living. (laughs) She mocks a world that doesn't allow room for herself. It's a small moment, (laughs) but it's Hayward's brief moment in the kind of proto-feminist sunshine. And then he goes back to jokes about pin cases and how women want incessantly um, to be delivered newer and larger pins all the time. Now, there is this sort of extraordinary flourishing. And then you say that from around 1533, he's writing songs. It's sort of moving more into being a musician or returning to being a musician and composer is a better way of putting it. But those also, you think, tap into contemporary politics in important ways. Mm. The thing about theatre is you need a lot of stuff to make it happen. You need a stage, you need actors, you need an invitation to perform at court. And for various reasons, those things stopped happening. So it may have been a kind of pragmatic necessity that he had to find another medium to work in. But also, he was a singing man. And St Paul's would have been a congenial place to go when the foundations of your kind of religious culture are beginning to shake if not crumble but of course he was a humanist you wouldn't just write songs that say i love you forsooth 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 it's songs that engage with real issues so his songs tend to be about the importance of merriness and the rejection of malice i read those obviously in light of the legislation that says you must speak maliciously to fall within the purview of the treason laws and the accusation that the opponents of Henry's marriage of the supremacy are speaking maliciously out of a desire to harm. And there's that brilliant moment when Thomas More weaponizes the word Mary as a kind of word for the beleaguered Catholic community. In front of his judges, after they'd condemned him to death, he said, obviously I'm a bit put out by this, I'm paraphrasing, <laughs> but just as St. Paul was on the jury that condemned St. Stephen to death, but now they are both merry together in heaven. I hope to meet you, gentlemen, again and be merry with you in heaven when we are in a better place. You know, that's the spirit of convivial, humane, common cause. But it's also saying you are St. Paul and I am St. Stephen and you cannot not acknowledge that. By killing me, you are doing what the enemies of Christ have done. But that notion of merriness says we believe in wholeness and reconciliation and the long game, which will see us all in heaven together, you are following the short game of what the king wants, and you're dismantling a world we have lived in for a millennium or more. And it's incredibly powerful use of that moment in the courtroom to claim merriness and to reject malice, you know, because they kept saying to him, you are behaving maliciously. The king thinks you are malicious towards him. And more repeatedly on record said... I mean him no harm, I bear him no malice, I bear no one malice. So when Hayward starts writing songs, one of which is called Bear No Malice to No Human Person, to No Wicht Humane, you could not hear that in the context of these statements. And Be Merry, Friends, is another one. When it all goes wrong, just be merry, says Hayward. It's a joke, it's banal, but it's tapping into that moment. I think he sees his life as a metaphor for his values because a singer requires harmony and many voices blended and he presents himself as the mean, trying to sing the mean, that that voice that is not the treble or the bass that holds the melody together and he struggles. I can never sing the mean, he says. It's always just beyond me, but I'm trying to do it. So, yeah, I think they're really political in implication but also in overstatement. But I am struck... Greg, by this work that you have done, because obviously there's a sort of plausible deniability in his lyrics about being merry and not bearing malice. They're universal, timeless things to encourage others to be good. But to hear the contemporary resonances in them, you yourself have had to tune into his song. And that is something that You've explained it with great simplicity, but it must be very hard to do, to catch those moments, to catch those wisps of lyric that inform your reading of this. I'd be the first to admit I don't understand 
Tudor polyphony. There have been some wonderful scholars who've helped me to understand that because the music doesn't survive. We just have the words. So the instincts of a literary scholar are actually quite helpful. You know, there's only a couple of Hayward's tunes that we know. But from the plays, you get this sense that Hayward loved tuning into particular words in particular moments that had a valency. Another one I struggle with is enormities. You know, when Thomas More announces publicly that the Reformation Parliament is to redress great enormities, you suddenly notice that word for about 12 months has a resonance in all kinds of texts, and it crops up in Hayward's plays. So you kind of know that Hayward is someone who has that musical ear for the resonance of words, and it informs all his work. So when he starts talking about merriness and malice and the mean, all M's, curiously, maybe there's a psychological link to more in that as well. He is singing a song which will harmonise with people's notions of the politics, and it is deniable. And there are words of the moment. I've got one for you, actually. I was filming um, something about the rising of the North a week or two ago, and they take Raby and Barnard's Castle. And I thought no contemporary audience hearing Barnard Castle is going to be thinking about 1569. They're going to be thinking about eyesight tests, you know. And you can't think of eyesight tests now without thinking of lying, deceit. You know, you could get a laugh 12 months ago by saying, oh, good people on both sides. And I think the Tudor period had that too. You know, there were moments when words became politically useful and not being stupid. They saw what people were trying to do with those words. And Hayward's brilliant talent, I think, was to hold up this word and say, look, look at this. You know, this word is doing a lot of work here that we're not acknowledging. Let's acknowledge it. And you know, that in a kind of tyranny where silence and complicity are the real crimes, to hold up a word and say, actually, I don't think we did agree that you were an emperor in 1528 or maybe I'm wrong, 1524, did we talk about your imperial jurisdiction then? It's very brave to do that the language with which you smuggle in the tyranny. And so if you expose the language, you're doing what Erasmus did, expose the bogus nature of the claims of the Pope. I think Hayward is doing it in a more modest, homely fashion in England. But fast forward a few years, and Hayward himself has this moment where he is, along with three other men, charged with choosing, wishing, desiring, and cunningly machinating, inventing, practicing, and attempting to deprive Henry VIII of his royal dignity, title, and estate, and then declared guilty of treason and sentenced. Why? Tell us what you found here. Well, it's the thing that is called the Prebendary's plot. He was caught up in this investigation. It all happens down in Kent and in Canterbury, and reformers and traditionalists are battling it out to try and get the others expelled. And Henry intervenes and says to Cranmer, you investigate this. And so what was actually an attempt to get rid of the reformers becomes a counter-coup in which Cranmer investigates his own supposed crimes and to have accused him of a crime becomes a crime. And Hayward is always assumed to have conspired in this plot. Spoiler, it wasn't really a plot. It was just accusations that he was a radical, which, call me old-fashioned, he probably was. So at some point he was arrested I think what had happened all the way through the 1530s, Hayward had managed to avoid the direct question, do you believe the royal supremacy is now and always has been true? We don't know precisely the questions he would have been asked, but one of the first ones was, do you subscribe to the royal supremacy? And then suddenly Hayward had to answer that and the moment of conscience had come. And we know that either he refused or he wanted time to think about it. He was kept in prison and people in the Moore circle were arrested with him and they were executed because clearly they made a stand. Whereas Hayward eventually recanted and said, yes, I do. I think Henry VIII is the supreme head of the church and always has been. And it was an absolutely kind of traumatic moment, I think. You know, rather than them saying, oh, that's OK, then John, off you go. He was dragged to the scaffold. He watched his relatives and friends being hanged, drawn, quartered, burnt then was taken back to prison and eventually was let out. What had he done? I don't think he'd done anything. You know, he was part of a group that was known to be linked to conservatives in Canterbury. 
And so he was talking to them. And the accusations are simply that he had not believed. And then you know, by the fact of not affirming the supremacy, was seen to be opposed to it. We know from the plays that he wasn't. He didn't believe in it. But he never had to say openly, I don't believe in it. He just didn't say he did believe in it. So his crime, I think, was the crime when he was asked that question. And then suddenly he became a criminal because he wouldn't answer it. At what cost it must have been to his conscience to concede? Was he just frightened? Was he thinking of his family? He got young children. Was he thinking of the property that would be lost if it was all confiscated? We don't know, but he recanted. He was forced to give the recantation publicly at St Paul's on the anniversary of Thomas More's execution. Awful stuff. Henry was rubbing his nose in submission. And he made a very kind of grovelling apology and then was very quickly absorbed back into court culture and the entertainment industry in the period. But, you know, I don't think even in a very brutal age you could watch your cousins being brutally slaughtered like cattle in front of you and burnt without that creating psychological scars for the rest of his life. So it's interesting, very interesting to see him struggling with that decision through all of his writings after that. You know, he keeps coming back to what does a good person do when the wind blows? Do you stand up and get blown over or do you bend and survive? That's the proverb, the epigram that he keeps returning to in different forms. So it clearly troubled him. Mm. And he does have this unusually long career so Edward's reign must have been difficult for him in the circumstances, this sort of iconoclastic religious revolution that Haywood must have looked at with dismay. And then, as you say, Mary was the sort of height of his hopes. What became of him in these later Tudor reigns? It's really interesting because, yeah, I mean, he would have found everything that happened in Edward's reign abhorrent, I suspect, you know, and not least the practicalities, you know, polyphonic music abolished organs ripped out of churches and cathedrals, his whole living torn away and described as idolatry. Yet he was enormously successful at court. Apparently Edward, or those people who provided Edward's entertainment programme, thought Hayward was just the person to put plays on for Edward. And there are kind of stories of him in Northumberland's household, cracking jokes and being the licensed fool figure there and writing some quite interesting work. In Mary's reign, obviously, hugely congenial to have her. He taught her to play the virginals and had taught her music. So, you know, he had a personal relationship with her, which was very warm indeed and reciprocated. There are stories of him even visiting her on her deathbed and trying to cheer her up. But his creative output for that period was just kind of leaden awful, really. I mean, he trying to support a policy that he was losing faith with by the minute, I suspect, was taxing him because he was a monarch who he really believed in, in a way that even he didn't quite believe in Henry. And yet here she was burning Protestants and behaving in quite the way that was antithetical. You know, killing people is wrong, he keeps saying, at the same time as being aware of the kind of storm clouds all around that if this queen doesn't survive then the faith that he had lived in and wanted to see restored would be swept away again so yeah it's his 1980s it's the synthesizer and the glam pop period before he comes back in the early elizabethan period i think he had to be cross with the government and feel slightly distanced from it in order to create his satirical space and he didn't feel that with mary i think and indeed i mean it is extraordinary he lives i suppose it's probably 84, 85 years old, but quite a long life for the Tudor period, up until in 1580, is that right? So what is going on for him in the early days of Elizabeth I? It's really interesting and it's slightly pathetic. He clearly saw the same moral crux coming again, you know, that he would have to swear an oath to a religious settlement he didn't believe in. He clearly felt he was loyal to Elizabeth as the Queen. He was a loyal, patriotic Englishman, but he couldn't take that oath again. You know, the scars of the previous recantation, I think, were burning. So he left the country, catching up with his surviving Catholic relatives in the Low Countries, the Catholic Low Countries. And he wrote this kind of extraordinary poem to say goodbye. And I think he thought he was dying and he would go there and he would die on Catholic soil. But he lived on for years. <laughs> and... 
it all went kind of wrong again because the places he went for sanctuary became embroiled in the Dutch Reformation and he was constantly moving around between supposed safe places. He fell among Jesuits who took him in because his two sons by then had both become members of the society and they were being hounded and persecuted by Protestant iconoclasts in the period. So he went from Leuven, Antwerp, Cologne, roundabout trying to find sanctuary. And the really sad ending is he survived everybody, even his son, who had been his companion and the crutch that he lent on when fleeing, died before him. So his wife was dead, his son was dead, his brother-in-laws, his son-in-laws. He just had a daughter in England and he'd lost all his money. His estates had been confiscated. And so he wrote pitiful letters to Lord Burley, kind of doing jokes and saying, you know, remember me? (laughs) Could I have some money, please? And, you know, he finally died alone in Antwerp. Even setting himself up for a grand exile and death ended comically (laughs) in a way that he would have probably liked had he been scripting it for himself. There's been some very interesting work thinking about the Tudor period and thinking how did people live through this nightmarish time? How did they respond to religious change? And discussions at one point were about did people conform or did they resist? And then Ethan Shagan wrote his work saying actually there's another thing they could do as well. They could sort of go along with it because they needed to whitewash these walls so they could earn some money because that was their job or whatever. And it seems to me that what you've done with literature here with looking at John Hayward is to give us another idea of how people coped, how they accommodated change in religious terms that they would satirise. If they had the wit of somebody like John Hayward, it gives us this other response. Has that been something you've really been conscious of as you've gone along? There are several dimensions to what you've just said. But I'm always surprised that historians don't look at literature more often because there you've got people trained to write, exploring the most deeply held beliefs at length, albeit through characters and personae that are slightly at a distance to themselves. But, you know, it's a resource for how clever people thought about their condition under extreme pressure from the government or religious change that we really should look at more because it tells you what people were thinking and what was available for other people who haven't written what they were thinking to read about what could be thought. So it's useful in that sense. Hayward is the classic liberal subject. I think, you know, what does liberalism do when the space for liberalism is so marginal and extremism seems to offer you just one choice, two options? And what he does is try to keep that liberal space open by arguing for it, joking, trying to bring people together, hoping it will change. And inevitably, in times of revolution, the liberals get swept off the cliff. But it doesn't mean that it wasn't real and it was not meant to happen. In the 1510s, you know, liberalism was the coming space. The Erasmian moment was where all the energy was. And Hayward was tending the flame of that as it died <laughs> But, you know, it would rise again in other forms. So I think, yeah, he was absolutely painfully aware of the rival demands of patriotism, loyalty to the person of the Queen who was saying things that he didn't believe in, loyalty to God. And I think he, not just temperamentally, wanted to make this the subject of comedy because that's how he could handle it. But he genuinely didn't believe that there was a simple answer to that. You couldn't choose between your King and your God. And nor could more, really, but in the end he could. When it came down to the last moment of the last second, okay, it's God. Whereas Hayward left the country rather than make that choice again to buy more space to be himself and to try again to kind of reignite that debating society culture that gave rise to him, I think. I admire the fact that he never abandoned that belief. He knew what he believed in and tried to negotiate with the world on a daily basis to make that possible and to make the world laugh at its own preposterousness. You know, that's the great gift, I think. To laugh at monsters and laugh with monsters and try and make a monster laugh with you is quite a daring thing. This has been a wonderful introduction to someone who did something very important. He may not have changed the Reformation, but he was doing that tricky thing of speaking the truth to power and gives us, in so doing, another way into understanding this period. So thank you, Greg, so much for talking us through him. And to everyone listening, John Hayward, Comedy and Survival in Tudor England, is not just a study of this 
overlooked and crucially important playwright, but also a detailed, elegantly written examination of Tudor England during these years. And I highly recommend you add it to your online shopping baskets and your reading lists. Greg, thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much. If you enjoyed this episode, please recommend this podcast to your friends and family and do share it on social media. And also please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave a rating or a comment. Thank you. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.